0: We're going to read chapters 1 through 7. And the way it's going to work is we're going to read a chapter, then I'm going to just talk about a couple things that we looked at in that chapter. Because I think we've been walking through a forest and really investigating the trees. And if you're not careful, you miss the forest, right? So we've been walking through and we've been looking at minute details. What I want you to see today is how all those details work together and how they all come together. And you see the gospel, and it sets us up to go into chapter 8, which let me quickly, chapter 8 is a picture of what it means to function as a Christian. And we got at the end of Romans 7, and we'll get there today too. And I'm afraid if we're not careful, we can lose heart. But remember what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you get to the end of chapter 7 and are depressed, it means that you've misunderstood it because it launches directly into chapter 8, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation, which is what we sang this morning. So what I want us to do is look at Romans 1 through 7. That's why I want you to have a Bible in front of you. I'm not going to be foolish enough to put up seven chapters of Bible up here. But we're going to read it together. I think it's so important for you to see it as well. For the Bible to enter your visual gate, to get into your mind, you're going to hear it read, you're going to see it, And I think as many ways as we can take in the Bible are important. And then John Piper had this quote. Ask God to work in you the habit of praying for supernatural illumination each time you read the Bible. And then he says this. We do not see because we do not ask. So with that in mind, let me pray and we'll get into our study today. God, we are... <clears throat> About to walk a path this morning of supernatural wonder. And I don't think we can overemphasize, overestimate the power of your word. So, this morning, Holy Spirit, would you open up our eyes, open up our hearts, illuminate these passages, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might understand what's being said and that we might be changed as a result. Give us hope. Give us conviction. Give us a right understanding of you. And Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, save and restore souls this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now quickly, the theme of Romans is how to be right with God. And we're going to see that played out specifically this morning in Romans one through seven, and our uh, it's not going to work. We've been in our outline. it's all right, don't worry about this. Uh, don't worry. I don't think I even put the thing in there. We've been in our outline, and we've talked about chapter one, one, through 320 is sin, the need for being right with God and how everybody... And we're going to look at this more fully this morning. Like I said, we're going to see it fleshed out completely through the Scriptures. But we saw uh, sin, the need for being right with God. And then we saw the only way to be right with God is justification by faith. There is no other way. And then we saw blessings, the results of being right with God. And that'll take us through the end of chapter 8. So that's the outline that we've used. Now, again... Turn in your Bibles. Anybody got one of those blue Bibles in front of them? One of those stock Bibles. That what page is Romans chapter one on? Nine thirty-nine. If you've got one of those blue Bibles, hold that up, Andrew, if you would and show them the Bible that you've got. Huh? Romans one, yeah. So if you've got one of those blue Bibles like that, wow. Who does not it? Okay. So Romans 1. We're going to read chapter 1. I'm going to say a few things about it. Then we're going to read chapter 2. I'm going to say a few things about it, and we're going to get the big picture. And the power is not in what I say. The power is in the Word of God. So that's why we want to focus on that this morning. So chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's stop there a second. That's the introduction of the letter. And what Paul's saying is, Christians in Rome, I'd like to come see you. I've never seen you before, but I'd like to make my way to you. I've tried before. I haven't made it. I want to see you. I want to strengthen you. And then the big, big theme there in 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if somebody's going to be saved, how are they going to be saved? Through the gospel. Okay, We're going to look at justification by faith when we get into 321, but justification by faith is proclaimed in the gospel. There can be no faith, there can be no salvation outside of the gospel, which is why it is imperative that we preach the gospel. We can hope that God will save somebody but if we preach the gospel, they actually have a chance to be saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he's talking to Jews and Greeks in the church in Rome to make sure that they understand Jews and Greeks are saved the same way. For in it, in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, and this is an Old Testament quotation, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Let's jump into verse 18. He's going to start talking about sin now. For the wrath of... Let me stop real quick. If you're going to start a gospel presentation, how should you start? You should tell people about sin. You should show them the need that they have to be saved. So look at the expert. Look at the, the, the professional here, for lack of a better word. Paul is the one that was literally given the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in the New Testament. And the way that he starts his gospel presentation is by showing somebody their need to be saved. Not just somebody, but everybody. So, let's look at how to present the gospel here. For the wrath of God... Now, that's a good way to start the gospel, right? It is. It's the only way to start the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, verse 18... But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of God for the, uh, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what did God do? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And what does that look like? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless." Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's take a breath here. We talked about in these messages on this passage, the wrath of God being revealed in our current day and time is shown in that God gives us up to do what we want to do, which is the worst thing God could do to us. That's the worst thing. God could God just say, Go ahead, go do what you want to do. Again, if I've got if Asa wants to go play in the road, the worst thing that I can do for my two-year-old is say, you know what? Go play in the road. That's what you want to do. So God gives these people up. He says, Go your own way. Go do what you want to do. And what happens is as you walk down that road, it's a slippery slope and it gets worse and worse and worse, quicker and quicker and quicker. And he talks about homosexuality here, but that's not all he talks about. People want to take Romans 1 and just single out homosexuality. That's in there, and it is a sin, and it is a sin of the body. The body, we talked about so much in Romans 7, how we don't want to discard our bodies, but he talks about homosexuality here. He talks about a lot of things. He talks about, if you look at verse 29, Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but look at the culture today, but they give approval to those who practice them. The culture says, yeah, go do what you want. You deserve to do what you want. You should do what you want. And the last thing we need is to do what we want. So when God gives us up to that, it's bad news. Now, it's easy to sit and point a finger at people as a result of this, but look at chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And I love how Paul gets the focus from out there at them to inherit me. Because again, if you're preaching the gospel, you want somebody to understand, I'm responsible for my sins. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And we say, yes, we do know that. But do you suppose, let me not let me not insert that but there. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now stop there a second again. Stop pointing your fingers at other people and look at yourself. Am I practicing the very things that those people practiced? And you could say, well... Not the homosexuality thing. Okay, what about gossip, slanderers, haters of God? I'm not a hater of God. What about foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, boastfulness? And you go, yeah, kind of, yeah, I might be doing that too. So the point of preaching the gospel is to bring responsibility for those sins upon the individual to that individual. Verse 6, chapter 2. He will render to each one God will, to his, uh, God will render to each one according to his works. And let me stop there a second. On the day of judgment, it will be your works that are judged. And you say, well, we don't preach a gospel of works. No, we don't. But your works will be judged. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury." There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality between Jew and Greek or between anyone. Everyone will give an account of their life one day before God. And we want to tell people to flee from the wrath and fury of God. What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. That's important. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he's talking about now the Jewish law and how the Jews especially would put their emphasis on keeping the law for their salvation. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, see Paul saying my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children... Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Again, personal responsibility. And then this this statement, For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And what he's saying is you Jews hold this law up like that's the end-all be-all of everything, but you're breaking the very law that you're teaching. And as a result, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Now stop for a second, church. What do you hear the world saying about the church? There's no difference in them and us. And so we've got to stop and say, now wait a second. Is the name of God being blasphemed among the lost people because of my actions? Because I say one thing and do another. For circumcision, and he's talking here of the Jewish right of circumcision, which showed them to be the people of God in a physical way. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. There's no point in it. So if you're just outwardly, i will get to that. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And here's what I was about to say. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. That'll be real important later, right? Chapter 7, who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the written law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So don't point to your birthright. Don't point to the fact that you grew up in a Christian nation. Don't point to the fact that you grew up in a Christian home and that you went to church every time the doors were open. That's not going to save you. What's going to save you is a work of God in your heart, changing your heart, which will change your outward actions. Chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? So what's the point? What's, why did God do all that stuff for the Jews? Or what, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Which he's saying here, God entrusted His Word to the Jewish people. He revealed Himself to the Jewish people and wrote that down in a book so that all the world could read it. So what advantage do they have? Much in every way. What if some were unfaithful? What if there are Jews who don't walk like they believe in God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithlessness of God? Here's this phrase, by no means. And that means no, 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 is what that means as emphatic as he can say it, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail, God, when you are judged. So he's saying, don't judge God because of the faithlessness of other people. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Here's that phrase again, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come? That good may come, I'm sorry. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So he's saying, you know, if, if we're doing bad, and it's God's design, that who's going to judge? should we be judged because of that? God's going to judge the world. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And I love how Paul identifies himself with them. He says, no, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So who's a sinner? Everybody. As it is written, and he's really bringing this to a head now, the end of this passage down through verse 20 is the culmination of the need for everybody to be made right with God because everybody's a sinner. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous... No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Who? Verse 12. All? No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18 There is no fear of God before their eyes. And who's he talking about? Everybody. Everybody. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now that ends that section about sin, the need for being made right with God. That was point one of our outline. Verse 21. But now, but now. Whew. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Boy, that rings true with what we saw about the law being a tutor that leads us to Christ, right? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that's how we are saved right there. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, wow, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Man, that is, that is a powerful chunk of Scripture right there. That's the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And that word propitiation looms large over the entire Bible and particularly this book of Romans. And if you've been here a while, it's a stop along Asian Station and propitiation means Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation, as a physical person who would absorb the wrath of God that I deserve. That's what we just saw in chapters 1-1 through three, twenty. I deserve the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is being poured out on all unrighteousness. I deserve that wrath. Jesus stepped in, put forward as a propitiation, hung on a cross, and God punished my sins in Him. In my place. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. And we'll get to that in a second, but that's imputation. So propitiation is God setting forth Christ as the wrath bearer, as the go-between, so that all the wrath would be absorbed for my sins upon Him. So that, listen, 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 listen. I know I've said it before, but I can't say it enough. For the Christian, the wrath of God is spent. There is no more wrath for the Christian from God. Jesus absorbed it all. Jesus took that punishment upon Himself. So listen, listen, Christian, God's not mad at you anymore. Unbeliever, the wrath of God abides on you. And unless you put your faith in the one who stepped in and absorbed that wrath, one day the full vent of God's wrath will be poured out upon you in eternity in hell. Hell is full of people who didn't see Jesus as the propitiation. But... He did. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by, trying real hard, by faith. I believe it. God, You said it. And my faith is in the work of Christ. My faith is in Your goodness, God, and Your faithfulness to do what You said You would do. This was to show God's righteousness. The end part of verse 25 there. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Even though He could have pulled what He pulled against Noah and Noah's time and just poured out His wrath upon all creation. But in His divine forbearance, He waited because He knew what was coming. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that just and the justifier is a huge phrase. Because what it means is God is just to save people because He did pay the penalty for their sins. It's not like He just says, Oh, well, you're not too bad. You can come on into heaven. He says, You are a sinner, and I'm going to punish your sins. But I'm going to punish them in Christ, which makes it just for God to say, Yes, you're allowed into my presence. Why? Because the debt has been paid. That's fantastic news. And not only is He just, He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting No, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how are we justified? By faith, faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. So how are the Jews saved? By By faith. How are the Gentiles saved? By faith. There's no other way. Justification by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, there's no way that we can understand as non-Jews. Anybody in here got a Jewish background? Okay, nobody. There's no way that we can comprehend the giant shadow of, that Abraham casts over the Jewish people. They trace their heritage back to him. God chose him out from among everybody in the world and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. He was the father of the nation of Israel. The the one person that started it all. Well, him and his wife. He can't do it by himself. So God chose him and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, And he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. So when he starts talking about Abraham, all the Jewish ears perk up. And they're like, no, wait a second. What are you talking about? So this is big. Chapter 4 is especially big regarding the Jewish audience, but it's important for us too. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, and what he's doing is he's putting Abraham up as a story to show we're not justified by works, we're justified by faith. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, and again, the Jewish years would perk up, David was the king of Israel. He was. You want an example of what the Jews were looking for in a king? It was David. So he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about David. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are those... And this is a quote from a a psalm of David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then Paul goes on to say, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? The Jews, non-Jews, which one's it for? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So when was Abraham justified? Before he was circumcised. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward work done by God. That's why we baptize people. We don't circumcise people. We baptize people according to New Testament command. Baptism is an outward sign of an inner work of God. Baptism does not save you, but it's a sign of obedience that you have been saved. An unbaptized believer is a disobedient believer. We'll move on from that. Verse 11, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe, without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So why did God do it that way? To show that it was by faith, not by the outward act of circumcision. Verse 13, "...for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith." For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. We'll get more than that in a second. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, quote, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was how old? He tells us here, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. How many hundred-year-old men do you know that have babies? Or that impregnate women to have babies. Let's say it that way. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, who herself at that time was almost 90. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Boy, now there's a that's, that's one of them preaching sentences there. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. How can we grow strong in our faith as we give glory to God? And then he goes on in verse 21, Fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. Are you fully convinced what we sang this morning? That He's able to do even more than we could ask or think. Are you fully convinced of that? Here's a hundred year old guy saying, Okay, God, you're saying you're gonna give me a kid through my nine year old wife? I'm fully convinced that you can do that. I'm fully convinced that you can do what I see as impossible. Can God impact the ends of the earth until the end of time through this group of people? It would seem impossible. that same God is the same God of the day but like, any one of us like David it also, was stuck, David was a shepherd yep. a shepherd boy God chose him out of every, all the nations God chooses people and we forget that God still chooses people He can choose any one of us or all of us do mm. anything that He wants to do through us mm. if we're willing and if we're willing if we're not we're done right not done you got that right No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. What do you think salvation is? Salvation is God plucking you out of the world and saying, I want this one and I can do through this one anything I choose to do. Fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, verse 22, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, and here's a huge statement, who was delivered up for our trespasses, that's propitiation, and raised for our justification. Chapter 5. Blessings, the results of being made right with God. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I I don't need peace with God. Yes, you do. I'm telling you, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience and that's who all of us were and are in and of ourselves. You are at war with God whether you realize it or not. And let me tell you what, God doesn't lose wars. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace wasn't just an act in the past. Grace is a present force in our lives right now that we stand upon. There's too much there to even think about talking about. and I think we spent three or four weeks on it. "'For while we were still weak,' verse 6, "'at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood,' much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if God sent Jesus to die for you while you were a sinner, what will He do for you now that you're saved? much more than you can think or imagine. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, imputation, we were imputed the unrighteousness of Adam. One man's sin. He'll, he'll expand on that in a little bit. Imputation of sin. You were born a sinner. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. That's Everybody. Because all sinned. When did all sin? All sinned when Adam sinned. You say, that's not fair. Well, neither is being born again. Being born again is not fair. It's not fair for God to impute righteousness to you. You say, well, I I didn't sin when I was in the garden. You would have. That's the point. The point is all mankind is the same. We're sold under sin. We're born with a sin nature popular culture would say, I was born this way. And you know what? You're right. You sure were. And you need to be born again. That's the point. Well, I can't help it. I was born this way. You can't help it, but God can help it. And you can be born again to a living hope. Because all sin, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses from the time Adam sinned until Moses gave the law or was given the law, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let me just expand on that just a second. That's just saying, well, I didn't eat the apple or I didn't eat the fruit. Well, you didn't have to because when he ate the fruit, sin entered into the world. And maybe you didn't sin the same way he did, but sin dwelled in you in the same way that it dwelt in him. That's the point there. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass through the one man Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he's comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. Sin entered the world through Adam, righteousness is given to us through Christ. In the same way that we were imputed sin, we can be imputed righteousness. Imputation. Verse 18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All men have that possibility, right? For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in, not to save us, but to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then chapter 6? We're almost done, guys. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, law came to increase the trespass, trespass is sin, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So shouldn't we just go on sinning once we're born again because it makes grace abound? No, 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 no. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And remember, we're not talking about water baptism there. We're talking about being joined with Christ, immersed into Christ. We're immersed into His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we talked about that newness of life a lot over the last 30 some weeks. For if... For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Now see that word body. That's different than flesh, which we'll look at in chapter 7. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? No, 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 by no means. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now stop a second. Go back to verse 17. Thanks be to who for this? Thanks be to God. You don't make yourself not a slave of sin anymore. You can't do it, but God did it. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. It's not biting your lip and trying harder. God has done this work in you. And therefore what God has worked into you, God will work out of you. And that's important going into the next chapter in a second. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to <gasps> sanctification. Asian station, right? Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. And thanks be to who for that? God. For when you were slaves of sin, verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And what's the end game of sanctification? And it's end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers? Chapter 7. Last chapter. Can you believe it? Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Let me stop a second. Why is Paul saying this? He has said throughout this that the law can't save you. the law is powerless, the law can but he said the point of the law was to point us to Christ in not so many words. So what he was saying was, we were joined to the law when we were born, and the law condemned us and showed us our need for righteousness in order for us to be out of that relationship which is like a marriage to the law. The only way out of marriage is death. So somebody had to die, either us or the law. Well, the law didn't die. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, which is who? To him who has been raised from the dead. Why? In order that we may bear fruit for God. So you had to die to the law so that you may belong to another and you had to belong to another so that you may bear fruit for God. And what he's saying is you had to die to the law so that you could be joined to Christ so that you might bear fruit to God, for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. How does a Christian serve God? in, by way, by means of the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And we saw back, I think it was in chapter 6, maybe 5. I remember. That the love of God has been shed and brought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who God gave to us. God Himself in the form of the Holy Spirit is the way that we serve God, not in the old way of the written code. So now, if you're Jewish... You've talked about Abraham. You've talked about David. And it sounds like you've just really trashed the law, which is God's revelation of Himself to the Jewish people. So you're probably going, I don't need to listen to you, Paul. You're blaspheming the law. What shall we say then, verse 7? What then shall we say? That the law was sin? By no means. No, 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 (laughs) no. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin... And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Is the law the problem? No. What's the problem? Sin is the problem. Do not look back at that door. Don't do it. Don't. Don't do it. Don't look at that door. Don't look. Don't look. You're looking. You want to look, don't you? You looked. I saw you look. That's what sin does with the law. Sin takes the law that says don't look and says you really want to look. You should look. It's not going to hurt anything to look. Just take a quick glance. He's not really looking at anything anyway. Just just. Just look back there. Nobody's going to care. It's all right. You were born this way. You can look. It's all right. That's what sin does with the law. It takes something that's good. It's a good thing. Don't look at it. There's no reason to look at the door. There's nothing there. Now you really want to look. Because you're like, is there nothing there? That's what Paul's saying sin does with the law. The law's good. The law's holy and righteous. That's fine. But sin takes the law and uses it like a frying pan And just beat you over the head with it. Boing, boing, boing. Don't do that. Don't do that. But boy, you really want to do what sin tells you the law says you shouldn't do. That's what he's saying here. That's all that means. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. No, 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 no. It was sin, not the law, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The point is we need to see sin is really, really, really bad. And it is. Sin will kill you. Sin will bring you to face the wrath of God one day. Now, 14 through 25 and we're done. And we've spent four weeks in 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now we have come all the way from 1-1. Hey guys, I'm Paul. I'd like to come see you Roman, sometime. Gospel is the power of God and salvation. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're a sinner, everybody's a sinner. We need justification. Justification only comes by faith. The righteous live by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. The promise of Abraham was realized by faith so that the only way that the promise of God could ever come about is by faith. And since we have faith and have been justified through the work of Christ, we have peace with God. Christ died for the ungodly while they were ungodly. We were dead in Adam. We have life in Christ. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. We're slaves to righteousness. We're released from the law. And even in our release from the law, we see that there is a law at work within us which is contrary to the law of God and it's sin in our members who will deliver us from this body, the same one who delivered us from death before, which is Jesus Christ. The way that you're sanctified is the way that you are saved. It's by faith in Christ alone. And when we get into chapter 8, you're going to see what that sanctifying work of the Spirit does, what it produces. And again, I gave you a sneak preview last week and you've read Romans 8 more than likely 28,000 times in your life. But let me just say it starts like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Romans 1 through 7 has set the table for Romans 8. And I cannot, cannot set your expectations too high for Romans 8. Can't do it. Above and beyond anything you can think or imagine is what Romans 8 will give to you. I promise. But we've got to understand that it's in the context of Romans 1 through 7 before we get to Romans 8. Now I challenge you. Next week we're not in Romans. We're talking about elders and installation and church governing and polity and that kind of thing. And dads, I challenge you to read Romans 8 as many times as you can between now and two weeks from now, which by the way will be in a new building to show the faithfulness of God. Yeah. So between now and that day, read Romans 8. We are haltingly as a family trying to memorize Romans 8. And I say haltingly because we've been working on it for six months and like I think we're through eight verses or something. And we're not even really through those eight verses because we don't have it all down. But I challenge you, in light of what you've seen today, in light of the forest of Romans 1 through 7, look at Romans 8 and read Romans 8 and ingest Romans 8 and come two weeks from now ready to explore Romans 8. We'll probably not get out of verse 1 the first week and that's okay. That's okay. three things before we as we finish that we've looked at time and time and time again Asian station we saw spelled out there in Romans 1 through seven completely I mean it was point by point step by step it's in there I would ask you to avail yourself to that I might I need to put that on the Facebook page so you can have access to that and look at it All those things happen so that we may one day see salvation, we have been saved. for the foundation of the world, we were saved. We have been saved at one point in time. We are being saved. We will be finally and fully saved. This happens because of our union with Christ. It all revolves around us being joined with Him. I am at the same time, Romans 7 especially, a sinner and justified. I am at the same time justified and a sinner. And all of this is so that I might walk in newness of life now so that I might bear fruit for God and give Him glory with my life. That's what Romans 1 through 7 has taught us. In light of that, look at chapter 8 and immerse yourself in it. Be surrounded and covered by it. No condemnation, more than you could think or imagine, is in chapter 8.